Blog Talk Radio. Conversation on the Fight Network. I'm Don Henderson. We've got a host of people to talk to tonight. Hope we have a great show that you'll enjoy really listening to. As always, never changes. Roy Cummings is in Tampa, Florida. Roger Hendler is in Atlanta, Georgia. 
I'm in Sarasota, Florida. Frank Carroll is in whatever between Tampa and Sarasota, Florida. He is our executive producer and director of the program. But before we start the show, Frank, we lost a player this week uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles, and the dedication is in your hands. Thanks, Don. Uh, the guy we're going to talk about tonight is one of probably the most gentle person I've ever met in my life. Uh, although you put a pair of uh, pads on a, and helmet on him, he would tear your head off. Uh, and then we're talking about the great Frank LeMaster. Uh, Frank uh, was uh, a 1974 fourth-round pick out of the University of Kentucky. Uh, Frank played all nine of his seasons in the NFL for the Eagles. He started in uh, he played in 170, 129 games, starting in 115 of them. Yeah, and all were consecutive games. Uh, he was a, a roommate of uh, another good friend of ours and, and a constant uh, um, guest, uh, Bill Berge. Um, in fact, uh, when I talked to Bill on Sunday, Bill told me that uh, it, Frank uh, gave him the nickname Bubba, best all around, up, best upmost buddy in the world around. Um, uh, Frank, after his uh, – he played in the in the 1980 NFL Championship. 81, he was elected to the uh, Pro Bowl. And after his uh, after his uh, professional career, he started a, a gym, uh, which was unheard of in the 70s, in, uh, down in Brookhaven, Pennsylvania, uh, with a, another good friend, Ed Van Epp. It was Ed Van Epp. Frank LeMaster and Bill Berge. Uh, they took a program. They had it. They built a pool. Had a gymnasium. Had a workout room. Uh, similarly, you, you would find it any wide, but only better equipment. Better equipment and a lot, lot nicer place. Um, Frank, uh, it was went on to he and Bill went on to a few other uh, really success, successful programs that they put together and and uh, and then. Uh, took over the uh, the gym from him. And, uh, again, Ed was another one that you, you would walk down the street, he'd say hello to you, he'd shake your hands, but you put a hockey stick in you, in his hands, and Jesus Christ, I, you've got to get out of the way. So tonight we uh, sent our very best wishes out to the LeMaster family. Um, we know that his, his widow is listening because she was with Coach Vermeil, who's going to be on tonight uh, all weekend. So uh, we uh, we send our deepest sympathies and very best wishes out to the family. All right, Frank, and Dick's going to join us the second half hour of tonight's program, and we'll talk about, of course, from a Hall of Fame standpoint, Dick Vermeil, issues with the Eagles and with St. Louis and Kansas City and so forth. But uh, Frank LeMaster, number 55, was one of his key players on the Philadelphia Eagles, and we'll talk about that. Let's swing now to Tampa, Florida, and Roy Cummings. Uh, before we get into the football picture, uh, Roy, we've got the final four coming up. Some real surprises. No number ones, no number twos. Uh, the, the the open board out there. Some of your thoughts about that. We look into the weekend and the final four. Yeah, it's absolutely unprecedented, guys. I mean, never seen anything like this before in uh, the basketball tournament, which is just it's just amazing. You know, there's a lot of debate out there as to how. Um, you know, paying players is, is changing the games. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard some people say that they think basketball is going to suffer from this. I, 
Uh, we're not seeing it. All we're seeing is parity. We're seeing parity. And, and maybe a lot of that has to do with the fact that more players are um, are leaving the, their colleges sooner. Maybe that has something to do with it. Um, the, 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 bigger, the smaller schools are not going to be able to pay the way the bigger schools are. But uh, you know what? Uh, you know, there's a lot of little schools out there that are just great basketball schools like Gonzaga and schools like that. And as we're finding out, <laughs> FAU, Miami, not a, not a, not a small school, but a uh, great basketball pro- program with a great coach. And, um, look, it's really exciting. I mean, if, if you're a fan of new blood in, in these kind of tournaments, tired of seeing the same old teams all the time, well, you got your wish this time around. And I think it's exciting as, as anything, um, you know, not even a number – well, we got one number four seed in there, but then you got two fives and a uh, five and two nines. It's, it's just – to me, it's really special. And uh, I think here in Florida, there's a lot of people that haven't paid much attention to them are hoping for a Miami-Florida-Atlantic uh, uh, final. At a, <laughs> bring it in the state. That would be, that'd be exceptional. Well, we go to you, Roger. Interesting as we look at look ahead because uh... – you know, Miami was not tatted to be up there. And Jimmy's a great coach. He's done a great job. He went with James Madison to uh, Mason, I should say. James Mason, he went to the Final Four and did win a number of years ago. He's 71 years of age. Everybody said, well, this may be the time for Jim to step down. He's not talking about stepping down. He's talking about going forward. Uh, I, I can't say anything but an outstanding Final Four, Roger. No, I agree. Uh but just to follow up with uh, what Roy was alluding to, uh, I don't know if you saw Charles Barkley uh, talking about the future uh, of the tournament, uh, that uh, he just uh, feels that uh, it's ruining a just a, as I think he quoted, or I'm quoting, I think he said, a beautiful event. And I really do think that uh, it's changing. I think it'll change even more. And I agree with you, Roy, the small colleges are not going to be able to compete. And, uh, you know, th- this is unusual uh, to have these lower seeds in the, in the final four. Uh, and uh, I think it's great uh, uh, in many ways for basketball. Uh, I can tell you uh, I've been in uh, the pool, this pool uh, that a, a gen- gentleman friend of mine has run for years. I think they're, I don't know, whether 70 in the pool. And it's like, uh, it's 30 years old, this pool. And uh, there are uh, only five, I think it's five or six people that even have one team in the final four. And that's (laughs) UConn. That's it. Out of all these people, and he's already uh, divvied up the funds because the only people, if they they, uh, get a winner, uh, they get $35. That's it. Because the uh, uh, because of the point system, uh, he's already divvying up. One guy got $316. So, you know, you just think about how many uh, bracket buster uh, we've had over the years. And uh, uh, this, this was different than any in the past. There's no doubt about it. Well, Connecticut seems to be the odds-on favorite right now, and they should be. Danny Early has done a terrific, terrific job coaching that team. Talk more about him in just a second. But right now, uh, Connecticut's margin of victory has been great all the way along the line from game one until uh, last Sunday night. And uh, all I can say is it it just looks like uh, Dan's put together a team that has a great chance. And I think to add to that, to what Charles Barkley said and what you guys have just said, 
you know, the portal's been a dramatic change in basketball. So many teams are moving around. So much money is spread around in the game. Uh, no question about that. The big schools are putting out a lot of money. And uh, Roy, uh, I'll tell you, Connecticut's been dominant, but they're the only ones that have really dominated so far. Yeah, you're right. And obviously, I mean, you, you look at it and the way they they have dominated. So it's almost like the, the selection committee might have might have missed the mark there a little bit with uh, Connecticut. Uh, probably deserved a bit of a higher seed. But at the end of the day, I mean, let's face it, uh, Florida Atlantic, uh, Miami, and uh, uh, San Diego State, have, have, they've, they've all done nothing but upset people all the way through this tournament. So, um, you know, I hope if it is Connecticut in the finals um, or whoever plays Connecticut, you know, in, in the semifinal, you hope it, it's a good game either way. And uh, I, I, I don't have, uh, you know, a horse in the race. And uh, I just hope that the games are all close and tight and that, that the thrill that we've had uh, with this particular tournament continues all the way to the end. I'd love to see an upset uh, all the way down the line. I think it would just be great. And, you know, I, I took the, you know, I, I listened to Charles Barkley at a, a great segment on 60 minutes um, mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, on Sunday, which was, you know, really great insight into him and, and how he thinks and how he, uh, you know, goes about his business nowadays. And uh, uh, he's right. I, I, there is concern about, you know, the fact that the portal is, is going to, you know, what is it going to do for, uh, you know, for college basketball? And I think he's right. I think eventually uh, the, the the bigger schools are, are going to somehow dominate. But at the end of the day, guys, at the end of the day, um, you, know, if, you, you know, the other argument is if you're, if you're paying the player well, all right, well, you better get something out of it maybe two, three years, and, uh, you know, that wouldn't be a bad thing. That would be good for college basketball to see some of these players stick around as opposed to, you know, going to the D League or something in the NBA. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the bottom line is, well, if, if this is happening and we, it's already happening uh, where players are, players are being play, paid and stuff, you know, uh, it, it hasn't happened yet. Now, is this just the last hurrah for the Cinderella's? I, I don't know, but um, this tournament here – suggests that, you know, maybe Charles is wrong. I, 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 I'm sure he hopes he is wrong, but um, maybe he is. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe other teams are just figuring out, uh, you know, how to how to play better in, in big games. I don't know. Well, I sort of agree with you, Roy. Uh, I thought the interview when Charles said, I have no agenda, and that's true. Charles really doesn't. I've known him since he first came in with the 76ers, and they went all the way back during the course of that interview and talked about his initial steps coming into the NBA. And I was right there with him broadcasting the games at that time. And he really does it. He does a lot of unusual things, let me put it that way, and some not so good. But at the same time, he really doesn't have an agenda that he tries to put forward with he thinks everybody has to follow. Roger? No, I agree. Uh, the only time he's had any agenda is when Villanova's playing because he said they got a lot of his money when his daughter went there. You know, in, in, in a jokingly uh, a, a chuck fashion. Uh, another thing I did want to say uh, is I was really impressed with Jay Wright. Uh, you know, going from CBS to TBS back to CBS. And I really think that uh, Jay made the right move uh, to leave uh, Villanova at that time because I think he is uh, going to be the new uh, – face of college basketball uh, on television. I don't know what you think about that, but that's my opinion. I don't disagree at all. I said at the beginning that we was first signed. I, I don't know if I said it to Roy. I know I said it to you, uh, and that was that uh, 
you know, he's going to be the guy at the Final Four starting maybe not next year, but every year after that. Uh, he's going to be the second man, whether who comes in to take Nance's place or who does whatever. But I think when they make the change, I think he's going to be the analyst all the way through on the Final Four. Roy? Yeah, he, he's exceptional. Um, you know, it's amazing how a, a guy who's devoted his entire life to the – well, we shouldn't be surprised about the fact that a guy who's devoted his entire life, it seems, to basketball is as good as he is. But, you know, when you're a coach, uh, a lot of times the media is just like the last thing you can, you, you're concerned with. And um, it's obvious that uh, this guy has a, has a second talent. Not only can he coach basketball, actually played it pretty well too, but, uh, you know, not only can he coach the game, but he can really pass on the knowledge uh, to the fans. He's just exceptional. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's risen quickly to the top of, uh, of uh, the sports analysts' uh, list of, of best analysts, in, in, you know, on TV in, in a hurry. And he just has a great way of explaining the game, uh, speaks with authority. Uh, you know you're listening to someone who's, who's been there and, and, and done it in every uh, uh, possible scenario, uh, you know, big games, bad games. Um, you know, difficult games, Final Fours, the whole bit, championship level. Um, he knows what he's talking about. So he comes with, uh, you know, he comes with credentials. And uh, boy, oh boy, does he, uh, does he do a great job of uh, explaining it, breaking it down, and uh, letting people know what, uh, what to expect uh, in advance of what uh, they see. Well, before we uh, switch over to baseball with the season opening up on Friday, we have a great opportunity, uh, you know, to see a lot of these games coming up uh, and uh, a lot of the teams coming up that we can talk about. One final thing about Connecticut and Dan Hurley. Uh, not many coaches, of course. One thing that uh, they talked about during the last basketball game was where Hurley came from. You know, he came from St. Benedict's. His father was his father, not only was, but is one of the greatest all-time high school coaches. His brother, of course, is at Arizona State as the head coach there. But Dan came up the hard way. Uh, he coached high school. And uh, very seldom does a Division One team pick up a high school coach, and Wagner did it. The athletic director at Wagner picked up Dan, and then he brought his brother in, too, and they both coached. My son's grandson was going to school there at the time. And then he, from there he went to Rhode Island and then, of course, to Connecticut. But he came up through the high school program, not having worked as an assistant coach at a college, not having worked as a head coach at a college, went right into Division One at Wagner College and went from there and now here we are, what, uh, eight years later, and he's in the Final Four. Let's switch to baseball right now. Roger, we'll let you kick that one off. Well, I was just going to follow up about the basketball, about when you think about uh, the father, uh, Bobby Hurley, or, uh, Bob Hurley, I mean, and you think about his record uh, and now his sons, and I, could, and I, could, I always gave Bob Hurley uh, a lot of credit for staying in the high school ranks when he could have been a college coach many times, and that school doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, but yeah, they baseball, closed her down, and of course, Bobby is on uh, uh, coach with Dan at uh, when they were at Wagner, and then they yeah, split off. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and of course, he now is at Arizona State. Right. Well, I'm going to say about baseball. Uh, actually, it gets underway tomorrow. And uh, the, uh, for the Phillies are uh, in Texas uh, to start the uh, season. Uh, Mets, I think, are in Florida. Uh, I may be wrong about that. It may be D.C., but I think it's in Don't Florida. Don't forget who the Phillies are going up against the game number one. Uh, well, they, they, not only that. Grom. 
DeGrom. Yeah, DeGrom against uh, Nola, and Nola now looks like he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year, so we'll see what kind of year he has. Uh, They couldn't come to terms, but you never know. Uh, The other thing is then the Phillies go to to Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. So uh, what a start, and before they they ever come home to play their opening game next week. And, Roy, your Cubbies have done a pretty good job. Not only did they sign the the, uh, shortstop from Atlanta, but now they get a long-term contract to their young player who looks like he's going to be an outstanding nine- or ten-year player uh, at second base. So you're, you're having a little turnaround in Chicago. Yeah, the Cubs, kind of like the Phillies a year ago, are a team you gotta you got to pay a little bit of attention to. I mean, they've done some things here, and uh, the rebuild has been a, a little bit tough over the last couple of years, obviously. But uh, right now, they they think they can compete in the uh, NL Central, and uh, you know the pitching is going to determine it, but they feel very good about their pitching, pitching staff, actually. And uh, um, the fact they pick up Dansby Swanson is a sign that they think they can compete. They, uh, they, re- they signed Nico Horner, their second baseman, who played shortstop last year. Uh, Gold Glover, by the way, and a kid who can uh, steal 20 bases for you, hit uh, 280 last year, hit 300 for most of the season. I mean, they're strong up the middle. I mean, they've kind of taken an old-fashioned approach to building this team uh, with, you know, guys like Tucker Barnhart and Jan Gomes behind the plate. Uh, You know, obviously want to be strong on on the pitching mound, but you got Swanson and and Horner at the the Keystone Corner, and then you got uh, Cody Bellinger in center field. So, you know, they're taking an old-fashioned approach, uh, trying to win it with pitching and defense rather than hitting, and uh, we'll see where it takes them. But they are a team to watch. And, uh, you know, the Phillies, uh, obviously, yeah, a tough start. And uh, the toughest part is, um, you know, already, I mean, they're, they're you know, they're going to probably spend half the season at least without uh, Bryce Harper, all the season without Reese Hoskins. It's going to force them to move Derek Hall into a position that, you know, hopefully he's ready for. Uh, might force him to you know, move Alec Baum a little bit, make a little bit different use of Edmund Sosa. But, again, I think it's going to come down to the bullpen. Uh, the Phillies are going to hit. I expect Nick Castellanos to have a nice bounce-back season. Um, you know, I like what they've got at shortstop. I think Bryson Stott learned a lot last year in a, in a winning environment. You know, he, he he struggled at times, but he didn't hurt the team, really. Uh, they were able to work around his development. I think you'll see a better player out of him this year. And, uh, again, I, I just think it comes down to the to the bullpen. And right now, look, if Sir Anthony Dominguez doesn't make it, well, you got Craig Kimbrell and uh, a couple other guys who could probably fill the role. So uh, the Phillies have done a good job of uh, fortifying their team. And uh, if they can just get a little bit more out of a couple of guys this year, I think they'll be able to overcome the losses that, that they've already had. And they are tough losses, no doubt about it. Roger Huskins had a pretty good playoff and uh, hit some home runs, some big home runs. And, of course, hit pretty well, hit the long ball during the course of the season. His biggest difficulty was with the glove. Uh, no that's going to be that's going to be the story. Can he improve his defensive capability for the 23 season? Well, the uh, he's not going to be playing, Don, uh, for the 23 season. And uh, he's a free agent uh, after this year, too. So, uh, you, know, you know, I don't know. But yet, if you talk to some experts, Uh, they break down uh, his uh, fielding uh, compared to uh, a a lot of other first basemen. And it's a a very good comparison. It's not bad. Uh, I think what happens is uh, because he's on the big stage and he does hit a lot of homers, and he has since he first came up. As we remember, what was it, 17 or 18, and it's the first 
35 games, something like that, right? Right. And and uh, so, you know, you expect more from him. Uh, I agree with uh, Roy uh, about the first base. Uh, you know, maybe down the line, who's to say we don't see Alec Bone uh, moving over? But uh, they say that he's, I mean, really looking, has looked uh, good. Put on some uh, muscle and, uh, you know, he hit for average last year. He's almost 300, 300. And uh, anyway, I think, you know, only time will tell. I, there's no doubt, Roy, you're 100%. It all comes down to pitching, and if you need to have a strong bullpen, that I think they do have at the present time. Yeah, well, I think so, thing, too. I, go ahead. Go ahead, Rob. Go ahead, Don. No, I just got to the one thing that they, you have to look at over in the American League is everybody was pretty much conceding. The American League East and the Yankees, but as has been pointed out in the last couple of days, their pitching staff has completely disintegrated. They have two pitchers that are legitimate starters, and uh, so they're going to have a lot of trouble uh, putting together a, a long-term pitching, starting pitching uh, operation to uh, be as dominant with Toronto. I think Toronto's going to be very close right there with them. Go ahead, Roy. Well, and I think the Rays are going to be right there with them. And, uh, okay. you know, look, the Yankees, uh, you know, they, they – they, you know, they sold some players. The Cubs have a guy, Hayden Wesneski, who uh, is going to be the Cubs' fifth starter this year. And right now he's a guy that the Yankees could use. Um, you know, pitching depth is something. I mean, you, you look at your, your, you know, your five-man rotation or four-man rotation, and but you got to know that uh, in order to get through a big league season, you need nine of those starters, maybe ten. And uh, right now the Yankees may not have those guys. Their um, right. you know, the bullpen's a little bit shaky. Um, you know, I don't know if Clark Schmidt is a closer. We'll find out. Um, you know, they got this kid Volpe going to play shortstop. Okay, great. You don't like Laboratories anymore? You want to move him over, move him over to second base? Okay, I get it. But this kid better play. And, um, you know, they're spending a lot of money, obviously. Uh, but they're in a really, really, really tough division. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, look, the Orioles are a team to watch. Uh, more so, I think, than the Cubs. You know, they are a team to keep an eye on. Uh, their pitching came around. Uh, they might be stronger at the top of their pitching staff right now than the Yankees. Um, and, uh, you know, see how it comes for them. But uh, that's a team to watch. So, you know, that East is not going to be easy. Um, the, the good thing for the Yankees, I guess, is the fact that they don't have to face all those East teams as much as they used to. They're not going to have to, you know, they're going to have six games less against Toronto and Tampa and, uh, and Baltimore. So we'll see how it, uh, how it works out for them. But they may benefit from the fact that they're not uh, playing that ALE schedule anymore and that they're uh, going to spend a little more time playing teams like the Phillies. All right, we're going to have to leave it right there for this uh, first segment. Uh, Roy, thank you as always. We cover all baseball, we cover all football, we cover it all. And thank you very, very much. We'll look forward to next week. We'll do it all over again. But on the line right now. Have a great Hall week, of Fame boy. football coach and uh, Hall of Fame guy. We talked about Frank Lamastra at the top of the show, number yeah. 55. He played for Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeer with the Philadelphia Eagles. And Dick, first of all, welcome back to the show. Congratulations again. We had you on at the Hall of Fame, but congratulations again. But tell us a little about uh, Frank Lamastra, number 55. Well, you know, Frank was a special guy in my career because he played seven years. I coached the Eagles, never missed a game. Never missed a practice. I think it's 114 games he started. When I got here, he was playing side linebacker. Campbell came here and side, which was a more natural position for him. He really excelled. You know, he made the Pro Bowl in 2081, and 
just one of those all-time wonderful guys. And with me coming back and living in the area and him staying in the area, he and I and Bill Berge and a couple of people formed our own duck club together. We went deer hunting together. We drank wine together. We drank some of his famous Kentucky bourbon together. He was very close. Very close. Uh, I'm not looking forward to getting eulogy because, you know, at 71 years old, it's too young to pass on. Yeah, you know? it definitely is, Roger. Yeah, it certainly is, Coach. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, today. Uh, we were talking about uh, Frank Lamaster, just like you alluded to. What a great career and uh, the stability and and. Uh, uh, everything that he brought to uh, to the field in those uh, those great days, uh, you know, and, and I think it's interesting because I've been t- uh, asked uh, to uh, to ask you a question, and uh, uh, how's the wine business, and uh, how do people get some of that wine? You know, the business is okay. You know, we're we're not a big business when you talk about the Napa Valley, you know, the city in the country for good wines. We make about 10,000 cases, excuse me, we make about 2,000 cases a year. We crushed 39 tons of grapes this year, and it's going well. You know, we're, it took us 12 years to break even. It's it's not an expensive one. Our Cabernets are $150 a bottle, you know, and our Chardonnay is a $60 a bottle, and our blend is $65 a bottle, but it's good wine, and it's organization is led up by Thomas Brown, uh, is our lead consultant and works with our winemaker and uh, uh, you know Thomas Brown. In fact, he had the wine of the year in the Wine Spectator magazine as the winemaker. So he knows what he's doing. Dick Vermeil is not a winemaker; he's a wine drinker with a, a passion for the <laughs> wine. And uh, you know, and I've shared a lot of glasses of wine with uh, with Frank uh, Master a number of times over the years. We hunted together in everything. You know what? Toward the end here, he was really struggling. You know, he had issues, many back operations, and he could no longer walk properly. He walked with a walker and a shuffle step of about six inches, and he he was struggling. He had some issues that were just catching up with him, though I did not expect him to pass. He was talking about going to Montana hunting with me this year in October and these kinds of things. Last A week ago Wednesday, I took him out for lunch. Okay. So uh, anyway, he, he enjoyed our wine, <laughs> and uh, God bless him. But, you know, uh, we're located in the Calistoga, my hometown. The grapes come from Freddie Annie Vineyard. It's a 170-acre vineyard. My great-grandfather on the Italian side of my family owned 18 acres of it at one time. My grandfather, Emil, made our family wines uh, from that vineyard. And now we've grown to the point where the way to get our wine is join our wine club. We have over 500 club members. And go Or go online and Google. Google Vermeil Wines or come into Napa and go to the tasting room. Okay? 1018 First Street. But thank you for asking. <laughs> Well, and you know, I'll suggest to everybody that's listening around the, around the country and wherever you're listening to us, if you ever get out to the area where Dick is, every once in a while he gets on the wine train. He gives a little uh, – I was out there when he he was on the wine train, and he gives a little uh, uh, speech about the wine and talks about it. I'll tell you, that's one of the great things, I think, uh, as, as an inducement for visitors uh, – 
you know, to get on that train and just ride through and stop oh, off at the vineyards. I, I think it's one of the great things you could ever do. It is. Well, it's fun. Absolutely. You know, the thing is, you better not drive after you get off the train, but it's a great thing to do. You know, have a, <laughs> have a driver assigned to pick you up when you get off. But the, it's, it's a great experience, and the wine train program there in the Napa Valley has really expanded. They've modernized a lot of things, and they've made each stop a little more interesting, and uh, they've done a very good job with it. Absolutely. Roger? Yeah, Dick, you know, uh, we haven't talked to you since the uh, Super Bowl, and, uh, you know, a lot of controversy about that uh, non-call or, or call at the end that people think should have been a non-call, which might have changed the uh, the game. But uh, what was your uh, feeling and your view of, of that game? I thought it was a great game. And, I thought, uh, it's, well, go ahead. Too. Yeah, I thought it was a great football game, you know. I really felt, you know, that the field condition made it easier for offensive linemen. You know, all through the broadcast, they talked about people slipping, the quarterback slipping, the running back slipping, the wide receiver slipping. But they never talked about the fact that with that kind of field turf, the pass rushers aren't nearly as good as they are a good solid uh, turf. You know, they can't get the traction to come down the around the corners tightly and all that kind of stuff. So I mm-hmm. think it really helped offensive linemen play a little bit better and nullified a little more maybe on the Eagles side because they came in, they're the best pass rushing team in football, and I think that hurt them. But it still came down to what we all saw, uh, second half play, uh, you know, that one fumble that the, that the Eagles had. You know, when, when it's all said and done, that cost them the football game. But uh, – yeah. There's just no way. I you know, I don't like to boil the game down to a call that you didn't think should have been called or should have been called or did be called. Uh, to me, as a fan and a coach, I think you just let that go. There's a lot of other things that went on in the game that just let that go. You hear the announcers say, well, they just, they're letting them play, you know. Well, I think sometimes referees in no situation can over-officiate. But, uh, you know, he did what he's supposed to do. Uh, but I, I don't know if you do the same thing over again when you think about the magnitude of that kind of a call at, had on a ball game. It you know, may not have changed anything, but it should That's have right. Yeah. No, no, the issue is they're trying to sort of uh, nip and tuck the game a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I don't necessarily understand it all, but, uh, you know, the, the, the zero uniform thing, they've run out of numbers, they say, so – Hey, Jim Otto wore double zero for all those years he was with Green Bay, but they're letting yeah. zero come in, which is fine. But yeah. moving the, uh, you know, uh, the punts and uh, uh, the yardage and the sort of doctoring the game up a little bit if it all goes through with the rules committee. What do you what do you think about these suggestions they're making? Well, probably would have voted for a an evaluation of a roughing the penalty. Uh, quarterback when it was obvious it wasn't uh, roughing the passer. I think right. something I think, I, I think it should be evaluated in probably two or three years it will. You know, many rules that get changed don't get changed the first year they vote on it. But uh, I think we have to be very careful of giving the officials too many things to evaluate once the ball snapped. It, you know, that's, it's a faster game played than it's ever been before. Their players are spread out all over the field. 
more so than it's ever been before. The ball's being thrown all over the field more so than it's ever been done before. It's just, you know, the officials, it's amazing sometimes how good a job they do. Mm-hmm. Roger? No, I agree with that, Dick. Uh, you know, and I don't care how many officials you put on the field. It's still the human element uh, that no comes question. in. And, and, and what you see at that time, hey, if you have 20 replays from, like, what did they have, I think, in one game, 65 uh, cameras all over the place. Well, hey, listen, we're, we're all human beings. If you have 65 cameras, you might see it 50 ways, you know? I know. You better not go to the restroom. they got so many cameras around that. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're, they're trying to cut down on kickoff and punt returns. Uh, uh, they talk about the percentage of injuries that uh, are sustained during those two elements of the game. Uh, your thoughts on that? Again, you know, it knows there's risk involved. And I, I think whatever you can do to uh, cut back on the injuries where injuries are, are occurring, it's good as long as it doesn't distract from the true value of the game. You know, we've with this kind of kickoff, we've eliminated the kickoff return for the most part. And that was one of the most exciting plays in football. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Coach the game long. I started in the league in 1969, and I don't believe I've ever asked an NFL player when he's all finished playing, and I know a lot of them that are all finished playing, none of them ever said they wouldn't do it all over again. They'd say, in a minute, let me start as a rookie. In a minute, let me start as a rookie. You know, they know what they're getting into, and you can only protect the player uh, to a point. And if you go too far, you, you, you eliminate what made the game an exciting game. The physicalness, the competition, the contact, the big, long kickoff return, the big, long punt return, you know, all these different things. Uh, we just – I think we've done enough. Roger? Yeah, that's a great point, Dick. And I, I think that uh, Peyton Manning at uh, his, on his Hall of Fame speech uh, was a great spokesman for football. Of course, you know, Archie's the chairman of the uh, Football Foundation, and I've been involved in the Football Foundation for a long time. And uh, I just think that, uh, you, hey, listen, it's a great team sport. Uh, when I'm subbing, which is almost every day, I use it as an example uh, to middle school students about teamwork, leadership. It yeah. all comes, and football, you can't get a better example. No, you know, you, you sure can't. And, uh, you know, and with kids and playing in high school, there's very little people do anymore where they get bumped and bruised and have to get up and go back and play or go back to work, you know. And I think football, uh, especially at young, teaches them to, uh, you know, that their body is very durable and they can take some bumps and bruises. They they can feel a little bruise the next day and still play or, or feel like not going to work and go to work. You know, all those kinds of little lessons that are passed on and you know, the development of mutual trust through good examples around you because the kids, other kids and players are going through the same thing you are. You know, uh, I, you know I'm a big advocate of the game. I'd want my grandkids, I'd want my great-grandkids to play, and they would play with a little risk. Now, they're mm-hmm. not all going, very few of them are going in the NFL, 
you know, very few, and very few of them are going on into college. But I'm so excited about how many kids are getting scholarships to go on and play uh, in college football that if they weren't football players, many of us, including Dick Vermeil, wouldn't have probably gone on to school, you know. So mm-hmm. you've got to weigh the positives and negatives and put it into a package and say, you know, it's a hell of a game. Dick, one thing I've really never heard you discuss too much in all the years, and that is putting together a coaching staff. Uh, give the give the listeners a little bit of an example of, uh, and you had to do it in several different places, whether you did it in St. Louis, Kansas City, Philadelphia. Talk about how you approach the idea, and, and now, boy, they have so many coaches. I mean, it's really tough. But give us an example of, of how tough it is and how, what do you do? Well, you know, I was a little bit unique. Hey, uh, I basically never interviewed for an NFL coaching job, so I didn't really go through the extensive interviews that people go through today. Uh, when I put a stiff together, the first thing I did was talk to people I really respected and had worked with people that I'm evaluating. If Bill Walsh told me to hire him, I'd hire him, okay, and other, other coaches that I held in great uh, high esteem. I would listen to them. You know, uh, these long interviews are great. I don't talk to my wife for four hours a day, I'm sick. And <laughs> they bring these guys in, interview them for hours. And uh, and I, that's all, I think, part of the process. But I respected most with what I, uh, another coach told me about a guy he'd worked with, that another person that I trusted. And then I would, uh, I would go that way uh, more than just an uh, uh, interview or, or anything like that. And also... I, I hired two Ohio State coaches because I I watched every game they played before we played them in the Rose Bowl probably ten times each and watched positions play individually and collectively. And I kept saying to myself, boy, are these kids well coached. <laughs> then all of a sudden I'm in a position to hire football coaches. I hired two of them, okay? Chuck Lawson was one. Yeah, George Hill the other. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it just depends on what you believe and how you came, got where you are and who you know. Uh, I remember Tom Catlin said, Dick, you got to hire Marion Campbell and Fred Booney. Smartest decision I ever made was stimulated by a coach I'd worked with for four or five years because he had worked with him before me. So, you know, it's just, that's how I put my staff together. When I took the UCLA job, I still had a month to coach at the Rams. I hired... Ten of the assistant, uh, seven of the ten assistant coaches that Pepper Rogers had, and kept them in place. Now I don't know if people would do that. I I figured you know I'll go there. They'll become my coaches. If I treat them right and we all work hard together, uh, and they know I care about them, all of a sudden they'll be Dick Vermeil's coaches. And I knew they were good coaches because they were already winning nine and ten games. So, so you know, so there's different approaches. You can almost right. get too sophisticated in it today. Roger? Well, yeah, you know, and you look at uh, – I know you're uh, very close with Andy Reid, and uh, yeah. you know uh, what his uh, uh, tree is, has been as far as the coaching tree goes. Uh, it, I mean, it's unbelievable the number that have made it uh, to head coaches uh, along with coordinators. And, uh, you know, and I, I looked at the uh, the same – when you had the Swamp Fox went on to coach uh, uh, yeah. the Falcons – and, uh, and you know, and, and you've had uh, – go ahead. Yeah. The problem with guys – for example, Marion took my job 
and when I stepped out in 82 and a couple of years he gets fired, they take over a team on the downhill side, and it's tough. It's tough mm-hmm. to get them going again, and, of course, the, the coach takes the blame, you know, and I, I think uh, that's, that's a shame. All three head coaching jobs I had in the NFL, we lost the first two years, winning 35% of our games collectively between three teams in a first two-year period. In the third-year period, we won 72% of our games. Now, mm-hmm. today, some coaches don't get that third year. You know, mm-hmm. so then all, they're all of a sudden starting all over again. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes I, I second-guess that move. Hall of Famer Dick Vermeil has been on with this, this segment. And, Dick, I want to thank you, as I always do, once again, our tributes to number 55, Frank Lemaster. Thank you so That's much for talking about that and talking about football in extensive uh, form. Thank you very, very much. All right, it's well. always a, a treasure, Dick, to uh, talk to you. And I'll tell you one thing I'll never forget. I was at your camp the year of the, of the Super that you uh, won the, uh, the title and then the Super Bowl. I was at, at the camp in St. Louis, and then I got, I got to ask you a question at camp. Uh, how good is this team? You answered it. And then I got to ask you the question, when you won the Super Bowl, did you know the team was going to be that good? <laughs> that quite quite a year Joe, for me. <laughs> I, told John Shaw, I told John Shaw, the president, I said, John Shaw, this is a playoff football team. The first two years we had worked their butts off them. I mean, way beyond what you're allowed to do today. And, you know, we had nine guys left roster that went to the Super Bowl that we took over three years earlier. And, wow. they, and we were able to draft, and Charlie Army and Jay Zygmunt did beautiful jobs with personnel and my staff. And, uh, you know, but I, John Shaw said, don't tell me that. I've been told that many times we end up losing. <laughs> a, well, I believe it's a good football team. We did not have a weakness. Right. Well, it all proved the truth in the pudding, as they say, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once again, well, Dick, thank you very right, much. Coach. Google that. <clears throat> to Google that wine because we want to keep selling it for you. All right. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. Take care, partner. What a great man. Well, we're going to go from one Hall of Famer to another. We're going to switch from football. We've gone from Hall of Famer on the baseball front, the football front. Now we're going to go to hockey. Rick Beckham is with us right now, another Hall of Famer, and we're in the home stretch, the last few games of the regular season. Getting ready for the playoffs. Rick, tell us about the Lightning and how you see them right now. Well, first of all, uh, it's a real uh, honor to follow Dick Vermeil on your show. You guys are getting some real heavyweights in here. Thanks for shoehorning me in uh, in between these guys. But um, last night's game in Carolina, 4 nothing shutout, was very encouraging. And I don't know if I speak for all Lightning fans and and people who follow the team. But uh, obviously the last month and a half or so, it's been very up and down in terms of the performance. And I think a lot can be um, attributed to the fact that finally, I think all the hockey they've played, and when you consider it, uh, three straight trips to the finals, short, very short off seasons uh, in between because of uh, COVID, of course, and, you know, really jamming games in like no other era uh, of the sport has, has really felt, I think it was taking its toll. And hopefully this team has got its second win going here. 
uh, they know they're in their final seven games and and uh, then the uh, the real season starts and they know what that's all about so uh, it looks like they're they're finding their game and what they need to do to succeed and and uh, we'll see if they can do that. They're stuck where they are, third place in the Atlantic Division. Uh, they'll be fine there, and they're they're comfortable on the road, though the, the record this year doesn't really show it. Uh, but they know what they're doing, and uh, hopefully we see their, their game come together incrementally here in these last few regular season games. Roger? Well, uh, Rick, I'll tell you what. Uh, it's been an exciting NFL NHL season. Uh, in many ways, and many surprises. And, uh, you know, what, what's, what's your opinion of the uh, season? And uh, a lot of these uh, surprises, when we talked about uh, weekly about the Flyers and, uh, you know, the coach coaching change having a more bigger effect than it had, but I think they will get straightened out with the new general manager. But Overall, uh, which, which, uh, your assessment of the uh, season so far? Well, I look at things from uh, the Lightning standpoint a lot, and in doing so, I think their road just gets tougher and tougher every year because, uh, you know, we've seen the last five years Carolina become a consistent winner and very, very difficult to get them out of the playoffs. And maybe the Islanders aren't the Islanders that we've seen when the Lightning have battled them in the playoffs but they've been replaced by the Devils. And, you know, the Devils, I was just checking today, they're uh, certainly on a collision course with the Rangers in the first round, which should be an unbelievable first-round series. And it's not something where they really need to battle for home ice, either one of those teams, because they're better on the road than they are at home. That's how good those teams are. Um, I think most of the surprises uh, would take place out in the West, where you've got the L.A. Kings, and I was just looking at the stats today, they have the fourth worst save percentage among their goaltenders of any team in the NHL, and they very well might win the Western Conference in the regular season. Right now they've got the second-best record uh, behind Vegas in the West, and not by much. So that's a huge surprise there. I think Minnesota's lost one game in regulation in the last 20 or so, and and you know they're they're on top in the central colorado is kind of gaining steam and as they get a little healthier so there's some uh, some interesting surprises out there but i really think that uh um you know the devils in terms of teams that you didn't expect would be there now maybe the biggest surprise is the season that the boston bruins have put together were uh on a record breaking pace and wins and and uh and total points and so forth. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how they handle things in the playoffs, and, and the Lightning can uh, certainly relate with what happened to them in uh, 2018 and 19, where they blew through their 162 games and 128 points, faced no adversity, and that's kind of what's happened to Boston. Outside of a couple of injuries, they really haven't faced any adversity, so we'll see if anybody can – punch them in the mouth first and see how they respond to that. Rick, I agree with you 100%. Uh, the Rangers made a couple of big moves uh, right toward the end of the season. Hopefully uh, gave up a lot, of, a lot of talent, a lot of draft choices, but uh, uh, the Rangers, uh, the Devils are a little bit of a, a surprise, but maybe more so. The Islanders, if they don't die uh, in the last 
you know, seven or eight games of the season, they've got a good shot of getting in as well. And they'd have three teams in New York would all be in the playoffs. Yeah, that would be very, very interesting uh, for the fans in that area. And I think that uh, the Islanders, with the fact that Sorokin's really emerged as a right. top-flight goaltender and a Vesna candidate, uh, has helped to solidify a team that, you know, they're like the Lightning. They're like uh, other teams that have been very successful over the recent years where you're uh, your better players demand more money, and you can't afford to keep them all, and so your con- your your roster evolves, and you've got to make some changes, and they've been able to do that. I think uh, Bo Horvat's been a, a huge addition for the Islanders and, and will really help them in the postseason. Roger? You know, I'll tell you what, if, if those three teams are in, uh, it'll be a, uh, a real great uh, payoff uh, for the TV networks. Uh, covering the NHL, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what—you'll get numbers that'll be through the roof, uh, you know. Because I mean, even if you have two out of the three, I mean, you'll do well. But you know, I, I, looking at it, you know, from your perspective, Rick, the uh, and broadcasting too, uh, I just think that uh, the way the the networks are set up now with T, TNT on Wednesday night, and uh, of course, it's going to expand. Um, do you think this has really been a, a turning point, uh, and, and did it build on NBC uh, in, the, in the last few years? Uh, and is it a bright future? Really, it's going to grow the sport, which is what I want to see. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, the fact that there are two networks, not that they're in direct competition with each other, but uh, I think TNT's pregame show has been getting a lot of great reviews and the ESPN sees that and Hey, you know, maybe we've got to stay fresh and, and make some changes too. And I think that all leads to a better product for the fan uh, where, you know, I, I know the folks at NBC and worked with them uh, occasionally with games and so forth. And, and they did such an outstanding job for a long time, mm-hmm. but you know, they stuck with their format. They believe that the way they, they showed the games and, presented the games was the way to go and it certainly worked for them but i think you know this leads to maybe a little different uh look at at the sport and maybe forces some more innovations that can be beneficial for the viewers as well but uh two networks it means more hockey's on tv available to to fans nationwide that's always a good thing mm-hmm. let's go back to one of your earlier points rick and that was that the, the number of games that the Lightning have been playing, you know, going to the Stanley Cup Finals, going to the winning the Stanley Cup over the last four or five years, there had to be a little bit, if not a physical letdown during the course, there had to be a little bit of a mental letdown, especially from a defensive standpoint of the pressure that you got to come under for every single game, and I think that that, that took its toll during maybe the second third of the of the season. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the game's never been faster. You've got to be sharp, and you've got to be very well prepared every single night right. in the NHL, or you look foolish, you know. And if you're not prepared, and you're not sharp, and you're a little bit uh, lagging in terms of your uh, mental preparation, you're not going to look good. And there were a few nights where the Lightning did not look good against the Panthers, a 7-2 game, or a game against Ottawa, which I think was a wake-up call here last week, and and a few other, you know, uh, games that left you scratching your head a little bit about, wow, what's going on with this team? 
they're asking the same question. I mean, they know what they can do, and they even though the the roster and the fringes has evolved over the years, and you know you certainly don't have the lineup you had in 2020 when you won the first of the two Stanley Cups, but um, at the same time, uh, you know they've got capable guys who've developed in that lineup, and and I think they really feel that they will have a mental edge going into the playoffs. They've certainly got the, the Maple Leafs number in terms of that first-round matchup. Uh, having come from 3-1 down last uh, last season and coming back to win that in seven games, and they've, they've always handled it. Now, you can't rely on that, but I think that uh, the state of this team, and, and Vasilevsky in particular, no one's played more hockey and goal than he has. And, I, I, you know, you think back to the, the Edmonton run. You know, the playoffs weren't as long. There was, you know, full off seasons between those uh, those years where Edmonton won, what, five out of seven years, and the four straight by the Islanders. But consider what happened in goal with those teams. You had Grant Fuhr and Andy Moog, one and one A. Now, Grant Fuhr took over certainly in the playoffs and, and played so many of the important games, and Billy Smith did the same for the Islanders. But they had to, they didn't have to carry a 65-game load in the regular season going in because you had Chico Resch supporting Smitty, and you had uh, Andy Moog, very, very capable working with Fuhrer. Now, Brian Elliott's done a nice job for what he's been asked to do here, uh, and Curtis McElhenney before him. But, but Vassy, oh, my gosh. I mean, he, does, he plays every second of every playoff game in the last three years. Who's done that? That is an amazing accomplishment to be able to play uh, every game. Uh, I mean, they, they just when you think about the, the stress uh, night after night. I mean, uh, you know, the physical uh, that takes you physically on you. I mean, that, that, that's a great point. We're getting a little override, I think. Yeah, we got a little uh, interference there. I, I don't know whether you uh, you heard it or not. Yeah, I Rick. got it. I got it. Yep, just a little. Okay. Got it taken care yeah, of. I was just saying that, that that point you made about playing night after night, I mean, the, the physical physicalness uh, of the game, and then you look in the NBA, guys take the night off if they feel like it. You don't see that in the NHL. Yeah, that is for sure. Um, I do think, though, that the leagues in general, and not just the uh, the NHL, but the NBA too, maybe, um, they want to jam these games in because they don't want a, a really long extended season. Well, okay, that, that's great from a calendar standpoint, but yet you're going to ask these guys to play 82 games, three and four uh, game weeks, week after week after week. It's a physical game, the National Hockey League, very physical. And I, I do think that uh, they have condensed the schedule, even though it's still 82 games and has been for a long time, they've condensed the schedule and fit it into a tighter window. And it's not going to lend itself to the best product it could be. I'm not saying it's a lesser product than it's been before, but it's not as good as it could be because coaches can't practice teams. I mean, rest becomes the priority. I mean, really, is that going to lead to a a better quality of game? The fact that rest becomes paramount? No, 
you want these guys to to have the rest that they need, spread the games out a little bit, and give them a chance to recover. Especially when you play the number of games that the Lightning have played over the last four or five years. And, but let's go back to your uh, earlier point. And uh, as you take a look at the big scale of the playoffs, how do you rate the Lightning right now in comparison to last year or two years ago or as opposed to the other top two or three teams that they have to beat? Well, I, I think I'd probably be surprised if I looked at the results if it was in front of me right now from last year and if, of where they were and what you thought of how they were playing going into the playoffs might be a little different. But I'm a little more concerned this year, no question about it, because, um, you know, all these games do take a toll on a veteran team, and the Lightning are a veteran team. And while you were able to add – you know, Blake Coleman and Barkley Goodrow and Zach Bogosian, um, Luke Shen the first year, and and some quality guys for the second cup and pretty much have that group. They don't have Ryan McDonough anymore, and that's a, that's a big loss there. I think you have to kind of look at some of the guys who are no longer there and ask the question um, whether who they have, particularly in that defensive unit, are they going to give them enough to be able to skate to a Stanley Cup. And it's possible. It is possible, no question about it. But, um, you know, a guy like McDonough is really going to be missed going into this playoff year uh, in particular. And and uh, the other factor is there's guys on that team are just getting a year older. So uh, it's going to be a need for the Nick Pauls. He was such a hero last year. Brandon Hagel may be the best consistent force on this team this year outside of Kucherov and, and uh, Braden Point. But, uh, you know, you're really going to need those guys, and they need to get something out of Tanner Janot. I think you really see a physical presence. This is beneficial to, to the team and will be certainly in the playoffs. But, uh, you know, and Michael Asimon, they need to add a little offense. It would be great if they could do that and, uh, and just provide a little extra beyond what they've done. Nick Perbix, a terrific young player on defense. I think he's going to be very good for a, a long time here, but he's a rookie. Can he do the job? We'll find out. But uh, there's some slack that has to be picked up, I think, on that defense, and uh, that's going to be a big question. Roger? Yeah, the, uh, so much that you've uh... – uh, I've talked about tonight, Rick. Uh, it's just amazing uh, how much has been covered. And uh, what do you look uh, for? What's your prediction? Since we're talking, going to be talking about the Final Four later, what what do you look at? Who is going to win the Stanley Cup? If you well, are I'd betting, like to say the, I'd like to I say know the, the Lightning. lightning. <laughs> yeah, I know. but uh, other than the Lightning. I don't know. I, like I said, I think Boston's going to uh, have to deal with some things that maybe they haven't faced this year. Everything's come very easy to them. And if they end up with the Islanders, um, you know, Pittsburgh, whoever they get, uh, they're going to get challenged. And it's going to be interesting to see how they come out of that. But uh, I think one of the things that kind of thins the field of contenders is how difficult these second-place, third-place matchups in each division uh, really knock out some, some quality teams. Like, 
Lightning Leafs, whoever wins that series, a very good team, a quality team is going to get left behind. Rangers Devils, a quality team is going to lose out early. Um, if it's, you know, Dallas and, and Colorado, a, a quality team, maybe a defending Stanley Cup champion is going to get left behind. So that kind of thins the field a little bit, makes it difficult to predict, really. Um, but, uh, you know, Lightning may not have the depth they used to have, but uh, I don't know if it's if it's early to say the Rangers have a ton of depth now with Patrick Kane or not. I mean, is it all working together for them yet? Uh, do they have enough time He's to fit 33. all the together? I don't know. He's 33, Kane. Yes. Yep. They brought him, they just brought him in. But one of the things that was really significant about the earlier years when it came to Game 7, it seemed like the Lightning always had better legs and better defense. They weren't worn out. They played a lot of series that went a long way. How about this year? Do they have to, do they have to get on the board early and take some of these games out before they go to six and seven games? That would certainly help if they could. Um, you know, I don't think anyone can predict how these series oh, are no, go because they're it. so co- closely uh, matched, these teams, in the first round especially. But um, it would certainly behoove them to do it. I think it's always something that helps you if you can get a five or six or or you don't want to get too long of a break. I think the Lightning's gone through that, you know, like with may- maybe an eight-day break uh, over their cup years where between one series and another, and maybe that was a little too long. But – Getting some sort of a break would really, really help this team if they can knock somebody out early. Um, that might give them the second win they need because they get to those sixth and seventh games. They're, they're more mentally capable of winning those games than, than just about anybody in the tournament because they know how to control emotion. They know how to control discipline and, and right. control their game. But... Uh, like you say, you don't want to go four rounds of, of having to go six or seven. Roger? Well, Rick, you know, you talked about that we it's a night of Hall of Famers. You're one. We had Dick Vermeil. Well, we're going to another one. So we appreciate uh, you being with us as always and look forward to uh, talking to you as the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs uh, continue. But thanks, so We got uh, Teresa Grants, okay, another Hall of Famer. Uh, she's in the Naismith Hall, uh, Basketball Hall of Fame, the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. She was on the uh, Immaculata Mighty Mites. They made the movie about that team. She's coached at Rutgers. She coached at Illinois. And it's the Women's Final Four. And we're going to give time to the women tonight, Coach. Good to talk to you. Great to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, the reason we're looking know, forward to it, because I tell you, it, it's, uh, it, most people along the way uh, listening to us around the country probably never heard of Immaculata. And, of course, when it comes to the Final Four, you know, <laughs> uh, the women weren't even allowed to use, you know, uh, the, the March Madness as their right. headline when you were playing. So it's an entirely <laughs> different world today, Teresa. It's very different. Um and that's a good thing. It's grown, so I'm happy. I just hope that 50 years from now, we don't have to still be talking about Title IX. I hope things are a little bit better. 
Oh, amen to that. You know, looking at the uh, matchup, Iowa, South Carolina, LSU, Vatek, and I look, I, I watched that game. Well, I watched all the games, but uh, on Iowa, I guess when you were at Illinois and you were in the Big Ten coaching against Lisa Bluter that time, uh, Bluter that time, right? She That's was there correct. then. Yes. Yes. Twenty-five well, was, years. Go ahead. She was at Drake when we were hosting uh, the regionals at Illinois, and then she went from Drake to Illinois. So yes, I, I knew Lisa quite well. Okay, well, I, I look at Caitlin Clark, and they say that's the big matchup against uh, Aaliyah Boston for South Carolina. I'll tell you, what I saw in Caitlin Clark is one heck of a player, Coach. She is um, – she's got a great platform. And when I, The first time I heard about her, I thought, okay, let me check this kid out. And I saw her um, just really as she was driving the basket, she could finish – but what fascinated me was her placement of the, her hands on the ball. She never just chucked it up there. She knew exactly where she wanted it to come off that board and be able to get that that roll or that spin or whatever she needed. And I thought, well, that's pretty darn good. And, of course, then she's increased her range. She's not afraid to do it. And she's got a green light. She's in a program and a coach that, um, you know, you come over half court, I feel this. Oh, let me pull this trigger. You know, I'm not sure everybody would go for that, but I think that that's going to change the game because when you saw the McDonald's All-American game the other night, the scores, both teams were in triple digits. Mm-hmm. They're, they, are, they are pulling the trigger, and they are shooting from 35 feet. So it's, it's going to be a change, and it's great, and it's entertaining as can be. Well, the reason let's talk about another Philadelphia and Dawn Staley, and tell us a little bit about that because we've seen Dawn – uh, in Philadelphia, we saw her play in college. We saw her at Temple. Uh, and now, of course, she's uh, on a record run at South Carolina. Tell us about her coaching technique and what she's doing. Well, she's got, she's got a, a, a dynasty rolling here. She, she has her players. She has um, her, her culture, how she wants to do it. Her players have to meet her demands, and they do. And they, they enjoy it. They like it. Maybe not every day. But they like the end of it, and she's got depth. Uh, in the Merlin game, Merlin had a great plan. They stretched, they stretched them out a little bit, and uh, you know, Dawn's five wasn't doing what she needed to do, so she pulled them off and put the second team in. And that's one of the biggest and the hardest games to win all year, and yet she was able to do that. And Merlin got in a little bit of foul trouble. They didn't have the depth that, that South Carolina had. And, and Boston is an unbelievable player. And the rest of them, they can all play defense. That line that they have with the four of them across that, what they rank, they're first in the country in four major categories defensively. So um, it, it definitely is the best defense against the best offense. And that Dawn, is a, she's, a, she's the giant. And you have to say, is, is, can Iowa be – are they the, uh, the giant player? So we'll see. Yeah, well, the other Roger, we'll team, let you close uh, out this segment. Go ahead. Yeah, well, the other team, uh, well, I mean, the other game, LSU and Fox Tech, uh, there, I mean, uh, let's face it, uh, Tim Mulkey, she's been through it all. And uh, at Baylor and, and now at, uh, at, at uh, LSU. Yeah, what do you, uh, how, do, how does that game uh, size up in your mind? 
Well, you know, Virginia Tech is very quiet, but they've got their guard, uh, Georgia Moore, is very good. And their inside kid, Elizabeth, um, they've got a nice one-two punch in there. And they play very, very well together. They're probably the, the team that's more under the radar in this Final Four. And Kim, what she has done in two years at LSU, um, it's phenomenal. And she, she gets her players. She's feisty. She's emotional. She gets into it. But she was like that as a player when she was playing at Louisiana Tech and then coaching at Louisiana at um, yeah, La Tech and then she went over to Baylor. She's, she's all about it. She's business. She's fun. She tells you exactly what's on her mind. Um, I had a chance to coach uh, Kim back in the day on one of the United States teams, and she's a lot of fun, but she's all business. I can Teresa see that. Our guest in this segment, and uh, Teresa can't let uh, the Final Four go by without saying Connecticut is not there. And, boy, you talk about a rarity in women's basketball. That's it. <laughs> you know, and you, and the thing that's so exciting right now, when Connecticut did that, and the things that, that Gino and his team did were phenomenal. But the interest wasn't there because everybody said, why got, Connecticut's going to win. Their record is phenomenal. I don't know that anyone will ever do what they did. But here there is a chance. There's excitement. There's other teams. And this matchup on Friday night, um, is generating an awful lot of interest from a lot of fans who are not women's basketball fans, and that's good for our game. Well, Roger, I, we'll I let you close that, out this segment. Yeah, I want to say a couple things. Number one, you know the the big booster I am. I did Drexel women uh, for nine years. Uh, you know, coached AAU. Love it. I love the women's game. Uh, I love you and, and what you've done uh, over the years. My daughter, as a child, uh, I wouldn't say a child, went to your camp, and, and let me tell you, you had an impact on her. She coached <laughs> in Northern Virginia. She uh, then was the head coach at Salem's Grove High. She's at Jamokin High now. So That's she, where, That is wonderful to hear. That is great. Yeah, you know, and uh, and the, now her third grader is the one that uh, the other, the older ones into other things, like especially softball. But just to show you the impact that you had over the years, and I'll tell you, it was great seeing you at the uh, sports writers at Legends. A year, hard to believe. It's a year. It'll be a year ago in uh, the beginning right. of May, isn't it? I mean, time flies. Just so. goes, right. We were out to dinner the other night, last night with. Uh, Judy Myra Martelli, Phil Martelli's wife. Um, are you, Max? And we'd like to know, where did those 40 years go? It's like, I know. <laughs> how did we get old like this? I know. <laughs> Tell me about it. Well, let's say we're going to get old if we don't get through this segment. Trisha, thank you yeah. very, very much. And All we're going right, to have you on again after this Final time. Four is over, and you can give us an evaluation of how you think it all turned out. All right. Give me a call. I Thank will. Thank you so much. All Take right. care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Mike Zimzak is ready to go right now. He's in the Baltimore, Washington area. And uh, always something going on. That we always talk about MLS with uh, with uh, Mike right off the top. Uh, anything new before we move to something else tonight, Mike? Um, <clears throat> no, it's still the early season. I think the biggest surprise right now in MLS has been the uh, – uh, team in Saint, the expansion team in St. Louis, which has uh, opened up, winning their first five games. So, uh, you know, they're off to a fast start for an expansion side. 
Uh, as far as the um, domestic game goes, you know, the U.S. won um, their two games over this break against Granada and El Salvador, so they'll be heading to the CONCACAF Nations League finals in uh, Vegas where, uh, this summer where they'll play their semifinal match against Mexico, which is a rematch of the title game uh, from two years ago, so it's something to look forward to this summer. Roger? Well, I'm going to uh, – hold on, Mike. Uh, I, j- I just go to speaker because, uh, you know, I was looking at the United uh, the other day, and uh, they're going to play uh, at home on Saturday uh, night. And the question I have is not so much about the play of teams, but I want your opinion on what's going on because everything is just on Apple TV. Um, I think it's I don't like be a, very, I, 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 a lot of people don't. It's taken a lot of getting used to. Um, it's a very interesting experiment to see how this goes, because because of the fact that it's on Apple TV, not everybody has um, streaming services. They're really counting on the availability of the streaming services to get it out there. They've had enough corporate sponsors, I think, who have you know paid for it, so they're making it readily available. I know, like my cell phone carrier gave us a free one-year subscription because I'll be honest, I didn't think I was going to pay $70 to tune in for every game. Uh, I wonder about the fact that they decided to start almost all the games Saturday night at 730 uh, in this half of the country. So, you know, the Eastern and Central time zones are all starting at 730 Eastern time. So there's no real staggering of the games throughout the day. And it, it, so I find that to be an odd decision because one of the things that they have been able to do were do like double and triple headers throughout the uh, throughout the, the um, Saturday time slot, so you could get a few more eyes watching games. Um, as far as MLS was concerned, look, they weren't getting their TV rights bids that they thought, so they went this route with Apple. It gives them a lot of control over their own broadcast because they own the production and they own the all of it, right? So they wanted a uniform feel to the cameras for the games. There was a lot of difference in how the games were produced between ESPN and Fox and then even more difference between how the various local uh, production companies would, would produce the games. So they wanted like a standard viewing um, so, sort of aesthetic. Um, They also wanted all their broadcasters to be in-house. I have some, you know, journalistic questions about that. I don't know that you necessarily want all of your team's broadcasters working for the league. Uh, I think it's better when they work for their individual teams. So there's no such thing really as a home broadcast anymore because all of them are broadcast by – MLS, and so all the broadcasters work directly for MLS, not their respective teams. Well, I, uh, I let's switch gears for a minute because Washington has a new suitor to buy. Uh, he's out of Canada, came in at the last minute, and uh, so where do things? You're right there in the heart of it, down there, Baltimore, Washington. Uh, where do we stand uh, with the new suitor? Um, I, to be honest, the latest reports seem to, would seem to indicate that we don't stand anywhere with this um, 
the gentleman from Canada, Steve Apostopoulos, uh, it, it was reported by ESPN and some outlets late yesterday that um, he had put in a, a bid that would have rivaled Josh Harris and that it was fully financed. But uh, some sources locally to here uh, have kind of hinted at the fact that that bid was not actually there and that the financials are not going to stand up to NFL scrutiny. Uh, likewise, the idea that the um, Joshua Harris bid, which supposedly came in at $6 billion, looks like it might be a little bit less than that, in fact, but they definitely have the capital. So right now it seems like you know the Josh Harris bid is the only one that is going to uh, – the one with Josh Harris, um, Mitchell, Mitchell Rails, and Magic Johnson is the only one that would stand up to any sort of scrutiny. It's a question of now does Dan Snyder accept it? Does he try and squeeze a couple more pennies? out of this to get, you know, closer to, if not over, the $6 billion? Uh, or is there a possibility that somebody like Jeff Bezos jumps in at the last minute now that he kind of knows where all the prices are? Because the theory was that Jeff Bezos just was willing to buy the team. He just didn't want him to um, negotiate against anybody, and he didn't want to get into a bidding war. Roger? Well, this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, this morning I heard – uh, the Josh Harris uh, bid is legit. It's fully financed, which then indicates to me that the other one is also fully financed, too. Um, a, a question I have, and I'll probably, uh, and we'll all be, not you, Mike, but the rest of us will be long gone. I would not be surprised if in 20 years you have uh, an individual owning several NFL teams. I think uh, this is the beginning of it with the Josh Harris uh, having the uh, Devils, the Sixers, and now uh, in the NFL. And I think uh, that's, that's what it's going to come to. When they ask for so much uh, money, you're not going to get corporations spending money like that to own a team. Those days are gone. We saw it with CBS, with the Yankees years ago. We've seen it with other teams. But uh, it would not, like I said, won't, I won't be around, but it won't surprise me if my kids see that in the future. What do you guys think about that statement? Um, I, I do think that they're going to have – the NFL knows that they're going to have to change their laws on how they finance and how they um, – and who they allow to make bids for teams uh, because the price of these teams right now is basically locking – pretty much everybody out of the uh, out of ownership, right? You know, there's only but so many people out there that not only have the access to the financing, but have the access to the amount of cash that you would need to put down to, um, to buy, purchase a team. You know, there's not a lot of people around who could just put down, you know, $1.5 billion, $1.5 billion in cash right there to buy the team, right, or can cobble together the Mike, let me ask you this. I, I agree with you 100% of what you're saying. My point is, or what I don't understand is, the dollar value in Canada as opposed to the dollar value in the United States. I mean, when, when our teams go up there to play, they've got to play them in American dollars. Mm-hmm. A guy from Canada is going to buy the team? His dollars aren't worth nearly as much as American dollars. He's going to spend a lot more than that. 
Well, he not if he has the money in the U.S. Don, yeah, he probably he could he be a Canadian. Money. He's got the money in the U.S. Yeah, maybe. But again, I don't think that that bid is as solid as people are making it out to be. There, there's a there's a number of indications that are coming out from various reports um, around this area that that bid just isn't as solid as people are saying, and that. Um, they're having trouble getting together the down payment for the team. So while he's saying it's fully financed or fully funded, um, you know, it may not be as secure. If the finance committee gets in there and starts looking around and starts to see some things they don't like. Remember, um, David Pepper, who bought the Panthers, wasn't actually the highest bidder for that team. He had the most money on hand and the best financing. Somebody else had actually bid more, but when it went through the um, finance committee, they didn't like what they see, and they're going to try and avoid something like this this time. It's also a matter of anybody who they get together is going to have to be able to either fund or get financing for a brand-new stadium in the next three to four years because they've got to be relocate out of FedEx Field. Don and Roger, but Don and Ro- going back to, 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 to answer Roger's question real quick, I think the NFL is going to have to look at opening it up to like uh, sovereign wealth funds and things like that, where you can have some of these um, hedge funds and cor- um, things like that purchase teams because they're the only ones who have the access to the amount of cash that we're talking about right now. Right. So it'll probably be the intermediary step. Something like that will happen. Uh, Roger, before they start allowing somebody to own multiple Multi. teams, because yeah, yeah because well, that, let me ask you, you this. Don't... Let me ask you this about the uh, Canadian guy, Steve. Uh, what are the chances of this guy, if he gets the team, saying, "Hey, I want to move it to Toronto"? They, they want to be international. Well, you can't. You, all you got to do is go a uh, an hour and a half north of Buffalo, and you're in an international team. Our city. What do you think? I think the chances of them moving the team to from D.C. to Toronto are pretty slim. It's only because uh, Buffalo, which is a team that the NFL has been helping to pop up for so long, it starts screaming bloody murder because that's their fan base, right? So – um, and you would also, I think Detroit's not that far too. And those, those teams draw a lot from that region and it would cut into what they get. Also, it'd be hard to get the owners to allow a team right now to move from the nation's capital to someplace north of the border internationally. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Listen, they, I, they're I not going to let a team move out of Washington. No question about that. I agree with you 100%, Mike. Also a team with the history of yeah. the, this franchise. You know, wh- whether you call it the Commanders, whether you call it the Redskins, whether you call it the Washington Potatoes, it doesn't matter. They, they're they one of the original members of the NFL. Not only that, but the only reason you see all the games on TV now is because of the Washington Commanders. I mean, you know, the Congress made the rule, they, they forced the rule through that you could not black teams out only because mm-hmm. of what was going on in Washington with the with then Redskins. Yeah, so uh, I just think it would be it would be a major mistake. And just because the guy's from Canada, I don't think it's like, oh, I'm going to buy this team to move it to 
Canada, there's a, also there's a number of franchises that you could purchase for cheaper, which would make more sense to move. And I'm thinking if you could ever convince Shaq Khan to sell the Jaguars, that'd be a candidate to move to relocate. Roger. Well, listen, I I agree that it would never happen. I'm not going to say it won't. They won't try. A guy won't try. Um, but I really do think that in the future, uh, uh, Toronto is going to have an NFL team. I really do. I, I mean, and uh, Buffalo, you're right, but Buffalo is uh, going to get, I believe, a new stadium. Haven't they already allocated uh, the funds uh, in New York State to, uh, to build a new uh, stadium there? Yeah, they, they've allocated the funds. In fact, they just released some designs for that. And I just – so, yeah, that's going to happen for them. I just think with that market being what it is, the NFL's not going to try and cannibalize it. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that you are going to see uh, a team permanently play north of the border, and it's not a matter of the appetite. It's the same issue that they had in Canada. It's the same issue that we have with playing in uh, – staging a team in London, and it, it's the taxes, Right. It's the amount mm-hmm. that they would have to pay in taxes. I know in in, um, in the UK, they would tax them at about a 50% rate, and they would take a proportion of their earnings worldwide for the amount of time that they worked over in England. So, you you know, if you're Tom Brady and you're making 25 plus, you're making $75 million and they're taxing you at 50% plus your endorsements. That's a lot for those guys. And so uh, before we run out of this segment, uh, Doug Apple, this is anybody ready to go. And, uh, well, let's just pick our winner in the, uh, in the, in the, in the basketball championship. And, uh, I'm who going, do you going to win the whole thing? I'm going with Miami. I think it's time for Jim Laranega to put the final seal on a hall of fame career. Oh, my God. I'll, I'll tell you, he is a great coach. I agree with you. But uh, once again, Mike, thank you very, very much. We'll do it again next week, and maybe we'll have a sale. Maybe we'll have something else that we didn't even think of happen. So thank you very much. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Mike, have a great week. Thank you. Doug Hamilton is sitting in the wings right now, our PGA professional, and uh, getting ready for the Masters tournament coming up. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that probably more yeah. next week. But uh, – Baltimore's ready to open the baseball season. The Ravens continue to make news. Uh, your baseball season has got open. Uh, what do they play? The Red Sox first game? Yes. Yep. Yeah, first game to Red Sox tomorrow. And uh, so give us a give us an opening day uh, concept. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, I'm ready. I'm down here in the bullpen. You guys have, have uh, <laughs> waved, waved the hat. I'm just sitting down here chewing some sunflower seeds and getting ready to close out the ninth inning here. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about the start of, you know, what hopes to be a promising baseball season for the Orioles. And, you know, I would go on record as saying that, that uh, you know, last year winning 83 games was um, a wonderful season as a fan to watch. Um, the camaraderie they showed, the uh, late inning, you know, spunk, uh, the vibe, you know, the home run chain, the – youthful exuberance, uh, the cast of, you know, um, you know, misfit toys, you know, it just kind of all came together and, um, you know, it was, it was a wonderful season. So I'm looking forward to, um, hopefully much of the same, but I'll tell you that, 
you know, most media pundits are, are suggesting the Orioles are going to, you know, take a step backwards this year and, and can't repeat that based on, you know, whether it's metrics or um, the fact that that was an anomaly and, and you know, natural digression would tell you that they're going to take a step backwards. But I don't know, man. I'm I'm excited, and, and whatever happens, happens. And I think that, you know, if, if last year was an anomaly and they do take a small step backwards, it doesn't really matter to me um, as long as that same, you know, uh, vibe and everything is still there because I think that their their farm system is just so incredibly talented and deep and um you know the real key for me is is going to be whether they realize where they are in the in the race if they can if they can do something or not and if they start kind of plucking from their strengths of middle infielders and outfielders um you know to make a trade to finally get a frontline starter there's so many questions that you know, I think remain if you're an Orioles fan with starting pitching, uh, did they really do anything or enough uh, to place themselves in a better position? Um, how's the bullpen going to hold up? You know, there's some injury question marks there with uh, Dylan Tate is one and Michael Givens is another. Um, I think that um, getting a, a full season out of Adley and, and Gunner um, is exciting for the fans to watch. I think that they have – uh, Kyle Stowers and, and some younger players that, that I think are going to make an impact. I know that D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez did not make uh, the roster, but I think they're waiting in the wings along with um, a number of other people that can hopefully contribute. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the new rules, I think, in baseball, um, you know, suggest I think that the Orioles have a couple guys that can steal some bases. I think that the, the shift concept is going to help them. I think that um, you know, the schedule changes they made and the Orioles not having to run the gamut of the difficult AL East um, in total of, you know, previous years is, is helpful. So, I mean, there's a lot of reason for optimism, I think, in Baltimore. And you're going to make it a family affair tomorrow, Doug, right? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to go ahead and watch opening day. Um, and then once uh, the Orioles actually open at Camden the following Thursday, yes, we will. Um, oh, as a threesome week. Okay. Yeah, we, we will go um, and, and take a look at that game. And I'm excited to, you know, there's nothing you can watch stuff on TV, you know, as a segue to what Don was talking about with the Masters. Um, you know, you can watch different things, but if, if you're there, there's nothing like, you know, the, the first game of the season, whether it's football or baseball or any other sport. Um, you know, just the excitement that, that you're going to feel from the fans and, you know, the vibe that you're going to get from being at the stadium. And, you know, it's it's exciting. It's it's um, it's the start of, you know, what spring, you know, spring and eternal hope. You know, all right. those teams break, they break spring training. And, you know, in, in baseball, I suppose it's a little different. You know, there's probably 25 or so teams that think they have a chance. And, um, you know, we'll see as the season goes. I mean, look, there's – any, anything can happen. You know, there's injuries, there's uh, people playing over their head, there's all these different things that could contribute to um, a really good season. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see how this, this script goes. Well, the Yankees are already taking the heat right now because it's some of the Mets because they uh, obviously the Mets have the two front-line pitchers, including the mm-hmm. Cy Young Award winner, and the Yankees have two very, very reliable starting pitchers. But after that, they're both in bad shape. So, uh, But I think the Orioles are a team, to be honest with you, Doug, that may be better the second half as they were last year 
than the yeah. first half because some of the younger players it's going to take them a little time, I think, to get their feet yeah. on the ground. Now, Henderson, uh, I've seen him play all the spring training games. He played some mm-hmm. at short. He played some at third. He played some as a designated hitter. But, uh, you know, he really didn't have a very good spring offensively. He had a very good spring no. defensively, but not yeah. offensively. Well, I think the Orioles, by some, have been tabbed as an upper echelon defensive unit. Um, you know, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, it's seemingly that Ramon Urias, who was a gold glove award winner at third base, is kind of the odd man out of the infield. So that should tell you, you know, a little bit of something about, you know, what they value. And, and um, you know, you're right, Gunnar Henderson, among among others, uh, Cedric Mullins was one um, that, that didn't particularly, uh, you know, hit very well in spring training. I think Adley Rutschman uh, was good. I think um, – Austin Hayes. Yeah, Rush, Rush Rush was there. Coming into the game the other day was in a little over 400, and yeah, Mullins I mean, was batting so, 320. So Ryan, you're right. I think I, th- I think this is the year that Ryan Mountcastle really steps forward, and I think that he had a wonderful spring training, and I think that he was about two weeks into spring training, he was ready to get the season started with his offensive prowess, and I think that there's you know likely some other people that you know I think I mean it's. It's always tough in spring training. You can look at it a couple ways. I mean, obviously, you're looking at the guys that played well, and you're saying that they're ready to go, and you're looking at other guys, and you're saying, well, you know, the, you know, Hyde was moving some different people around, and this guy didn't play as much as he probably should have, and his, his at-bats were pretty sporadic, and he wanted to get a look at some of the younger guys, and he wanted to see some of the, you know, non-roster invitees and see if any of those right. guys could probably make a, you know, so there's... You know, I mean, metrics are metrics. The, the, those numbers are going to support whatever argument you're trying to, to win there. So, um, well, before you know, I go back to Roger Dallas, uh, up on a 76 or 62 57 with 12 minutes to go and little net problem <laughs> in <laughs> Dallas. And also tonight, the one other note, uh, Kevin Durant's going to play his first game in Arizona. Uh, he's been a little uh, handicapped again. Uh, so, those two items before we get to Roger, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask uh, you, Don, and, and uh, also uh, I wanted to uh, find out from Doug. Don, you mm-hmm. were at the Phillies-Orioles uh, game the other day, right? Yes, I was. Okay, I want your assessment of the Phillies, okay, mm-hmm. since you saw them live. <laughs> well, I saw them twice, uh, really, during spring training. They were here twice. Had a chance to see them. You know, funny uh, situation with uh, Baltimore and especially the last three or four games, even the Philly game. Uh, they dropped behind early, and then they came on and, and won later in the, in the game. Or won, they went up. I figured it was the Philly game, or not. They went up in a tie, and after nine innings, they called it, you know, mm-hmm. called it off. But uh, the Phillies are very solid. No question about it. It looked like they, uh, they had a split squad they were here, so we didn't get to see everybody. But uh, mm-hmm. they, they played very well defensively. Uh, some very nice plays at uh, shortstop, uh, nice plays in the outfield, uh, a little bit of a wind blowing out, so a couple of balls went out of the ballpark. The first time, uh, Baum hit one, that he hit a double right center field, or left center field that was a bullet. And the second time up, he hit one over the left center field fence. So going with what Chris Wheeler said and what I've seen, uh, looks like he's a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. And, and as Chris Wheeler said, I hope he doesn't decide to be a home run hitter. Uh, try right. to keep the ball in those alleys because he'll be a much better hitter if he does. Doug, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, the Phillies are a very good baseball team. I mean, Schwarber had, you know, what, 46 home runs. They 
Uh, they added Trey Turner, who's you know just a, a wonderful you know player in terms of his speed, his defensive prowess, um, his ability to hit home runs and steal bases. I mean, he's a, a pretty solid cog that that makes that team or will make that team go. Um, you know, they have a the lot of other Can they make up count. for Harper, Roger? That's the big key. Can they make well, up for and, Har- Harper that first two and a half months? Oh no, not only, not only Harper, no. but. You know, Reese Hopkins, Hopkins. Uh, yeah. you know, he uh, yeah. tore his ACL or whatever. So, I mean, look, I mean, they, they've got some good pitching. They've got, you know, the, the makings of. And so, Rod, or, uh, Don, as you alluded to, I mean, you've got the Mets who they've got two pretty good starters. Obviously, they're a little older. And, um, you know, they lost their closer. They lost um, some other pieces to free agency. So, um, you know, I, I, we'll see what Buck can do with that team. But, I mean, it's it's pretty wide open, you know, and the Phillies are, are, are in the mix. I mean, the Nationals sure aren't. We can tell you that. Doug, well, who are you picking the final four to win the the, the uh, championship? Um, before, you know, before I, I let well, go away. I, yeah, I, w- I want to tell you that we, we did a little uh, bracket competition here in the household, the three of us, and uh, I was the champion. Um, which I'm, I'm pretty proud of. I mean, that means yeah, that means I'm smarter. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm smarter than a nine-year-old, which which is really a feather in my cap there. Um, <laughs> you know, aside from that, I, I had uh, I had UConn um, advancing uh, to the I think the championship game. So I'm I'm going to go ahead and take UConn. I mean, they've they've looked spot on uh, throughout all their games, pretty much beating everybody at will by double digits. So um, I'm going to ride their their hot hand. Roger, I'll tell you how smart I am. I'm rooting for Texas the other night, and I'm saying to myself, you know, how can they lose this game, which they did. Uh, yeah. Miami took them out, and I get on the phone, because I, I didn't know the team I had in the finals, and uh, or in the final four, uh, in the pool. And I get on the phone after I lose it, after I'm rooting for Texas all night. And they said, what are you rooting for Texas for? You got Miami in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so how smart I am. Oh, that was like a Super Bowl pool. I'm at the Super Bowl, and uh, it was at uh, Nottingham, Don. And I get a call. You won two hundred and fifty dollars. You know, on the uh, the numbers, the boxes. You mm-hmm. know, for, right, right. For, and I had no idea what I had. Uh, I didn't remember. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to just say one. We I don't know whether you heard or Doug. We had uh, uh, Coach Teresa Grants was at Rutgers and mm-hmm. and uh, Illinois on. Uh, I just want to say one thing before the show's over. Um, I mentioned to her, and, and I don't know whether Doug or Don, whether you or Frank, whether you watched any of the women's game. If South Carolina is going to lose. It's going mm-hmm. to be, in my opinion, before because of Caitlin Clark. To watch mm-hmm. her play, she is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, they talk about her in the comparison to um, the um, Taurasi, Diana Taurasi, mm-hmm. you know, that was mm-hmm. at uh, UConn and is in WNBA. And she, this woman was hitting from 35 feet consistently mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, I mean, if any, in my opinion, anybody's going to uh, beat South Carolina, it's Iowa, and I may be all wrong, but uh, and it would be uh, Caitlin Clark. Well, but uh, go ahead. Isn't that what uh, Gino Auriemma said that one time in the press conference? You know, he said, "How do you feel about your team?" And he said, "Well, we have Diana Taurasi, and you don't." And you don't. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> yeah. 
actually I actually watched the uh, South Carolina Maryland uh, women's game, and I, you know, Mar- Maryland hung in there uh, for a while. I know that um, they were slightly oh, devoid of some talent. Well, they they were good, but they 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 got into some foul trouble, and I, I was. I would have to say, not not just in the women's game, but a few of the men's games that I've watched. You know, my God, you, you know, some of those games, you, you, those players need a helmet and shoulder pads. It was that physical, and I really don't understand yeah. how the. Particularly, I, I was in in that Maryland South Carolina game. I, I thought that there were a number of calls that were missed against South Carolina that were obvious. You know, contact to the hand when blocking shots. Um, Let me say, if you play Dawn Staley of South Carolina, you better bring your shoulder pads because that's the kind yeah. of team she brings in. Yeah. Well, look, if that's the way they're going to call the game and that's the way people are going to play, that's fine. But to me, it seemed like it wasn't counterbalanced uh, on both ends of the court. And there were a lot of uh, calls, I thought, you know, in, in a lot of those games for the men that were the same way, that they were letting them play in a physical fashion and all of a sudden they would get them on a ticky-tack foul that was like a – Oh, well, you touched his hand, kind of a thing, and I'm just—I just, yeah, it's, it's hard, some of that was hard for me to watch. Um, I actually turned that. Well, don't forget that's off. the way the Kansas State game wound up. I mean, you said about that foul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody's talking about that from day one. How do you call that? Yeah. And it with the one second to go on the game. Yeah, it's a tough way to end the game. So, well, Rogers? you know, yeah. Well, we talked about that, you know, with Dick Vermeil about the Super Bowl. You know, people are still talking about it. I mean, what is it, uh, almost a couple of months later, right? And, uh, you know, you got to get over. I mean, it, it, that, that happens. And, uh, uh, but I, I, will, I thought it was interesting also uh, what Teresa brought up about the McDonald's. Um, I don't know whether you heard that, Doug. They, they were in triple di- both teams in uh, triple digits in the game. I mean, when mm-hmm. you have uh, high school teams – and I, but get, getting back to baseball for a minute, I saw last night a high school game where they had the Phantom Runner. Runner. That's the first time I've ever seen it in high school. Mm-hmm. I, I never heard the term until last night. Called the California, uh, what do they call it? The California uh, Runner or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's where it started. That's uh, what I was mm-hmm. told. But anyway, get back. What about? We'll be talking next week about the. Uh, of the Masters, but how does the Masters look to you fellows? Let's let the expert answer that one first. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's, um, you know, it's, it's to me, you know, you talk about the Masters and it's um, kind of the the real start, if you will, to the PGA Tour. I mean, I, I know there are, you know, uh, different things that, that come before that, but the Masters is, is a big deal. I mean, I mean, I hate to say it, but, I mean, Augusta National loves itself more than anything on the planet, and um, they showcase that place. And it's, um, as they say, steeped with, you know, tradition and, uh, and all those sorts of things. Um, it's a good venue. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of PGA Tour professionals that play and that circle that as, as their kind of, you know, Super Bowl or big deal. And, and um you know, it's 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 wonderful to watch. Um, you know, I mean, I think the whole Jim Nance thing and the music and all that kind of gets a little old. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a great venue. I mean, I think that you've got some players that are playing pretty well leading up to it. You've always got some of your Wiley veterans that typically show up for that event. And you've got some of your your unknowns that get an opportunity to play. So, um, I mean, Corey Scotty Scheffler. great. The match play until Sunday. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah. he, he was just, he was just unstoppable in match yeah. play until he got to Sunday. Yeah, I mean, so there's um, you know, I haven't really uh, spent a whole lot of time trying to, you know, figure out, you know, whether it's somebody else making the odds or, or whether it's, you know, me taking a look at who I think has played particularly well over the course of time or, or what have you, um, you know, we're leading into it. So, I mean, it's there's a little bit of work to be done to figure out, you know, who I would go with at this point. I think it's still a little early for that. Yeah, and the, the, the Leaf players are in. Uh, I forget what, 15 or 16 players are have yeah. been declared eligible to play in the match. I can't remember the exact number. I saw it last Monday. It's in, it's in that number. Uh, like, yeah, so it's in the 15 or 16, something like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so it appears to give Dustin Johnson, for instance, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know how he's been playing on that tour. I don't know how any of the mm-hmm. players, quite honestly, I haven't seen any of their mm-hmm. um, any of their uh, uh, tournaments on TV, so I, I haven't seen mm-hmm. how any of those players are playing. So it's going to be interesting what the matchup's going to be when we get to the Masters. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, um, Chris Russo was making a good point uh, yesterday uh, about it, uh, and, uh, and uh, because of the uh, live players. And uh, his point was that if you're in this – uh, just for the money at the Masters, you're in the wrong business, okay? Mm-hmm. Because there's more to the Masters than just the money. Uh, you guys agree with uh, that statement that he made? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, you know I'd, I'd love to be the one that gets a chance to pick the champion's dinner, you know? Mm-hmm. That'd be great. And I haven't heard anything about Tiger. I, I, I think because of the present difficulties he's involved in and he doesn't like to get involved in too much controversy although he creates the controversy <laughs> i have not heard that he's going to play have you heard anything doug no i've not heard i have not heard a yeah. word that he's going to play yeah you would think that'd be a pretty pretty major storyline so i mean i i think that'll be forthcoming well yeah, you would think you'd know by now wouldn't you like uh it's going to start in a week from tomorrow that's mm-hmm. what i meant i, w- I would have thought if he's going to play that he would have already announced that he's going to play. And uh, now he did uh, two tournaments back. He waited until the Monday before the tournament before he declared. Mm -hmm. But maybe he's going to do that with the Masters because you know he doesn't want to get involved in any kind of press conferences or any kind of, uh, you know, if he plays, he's going to play and walk away, I'm sure. Don't you think, Doug? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's going to try to, but, I mean, he is Tiger Woods. So, I mean, that's not going to happen. So, you know, uh, CBS, uh, you know, has been promoting uh, since January about the, having the Masters, but they only have Saturday and Sunday. I could never figure out why they don't put it on their uh, the uh, cable network they have so that they would have everything. You know, to mm-hmm. me, uh, of course, I I don't know what the viewability is. You know, the numbers of the uh, mm-hmm. of that channel, but uh, well, the problem is the problem is Roger. They won't let you televise. You know, that's the one tournament. You know, every other tournament you can see the early rounds on uh, uh, you know the golf channel, but uh, the, the Masters they don't they don't let you start till later in the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, I did not know that because I thought I've seen it on, uh, uh, like ESPN. Uh, no, they have all uh, kinds of restrictions. I don't know. I don't know what mm-hmm. the uh, 
I don't know what uh, channel or what time they let you come on now, but usually uh, they don't they don't usually let you come on until like one o'clock in the afternoon, right, Doug? It's usually yeah. not not you don't see it in the morning rounds or anything like that. Yeah, there is a stipulation. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the exact time. time limit is. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think this deal with PBS and uh, with Turner has worked out very well for the NCAA. And uh, what I thought was interesting was that, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Friday night, Ernie Johnson said, uh, well, we're going to be flying to New York, and then they did Saturday, and then uh, Greg Gumbel was back on Sunday. So they they really do a a good job of blending everybody in from uh, both networks. No, no question. They've done a great job. I think all the uh, uh, post-game shows and so forth have been pretty good on both hockey and on, on basketball, so, and as well as golf. Uh, so it, it's a, going back to uh, the Ravens for a second because uh, <laughs> Jackson finally made some news in saying what he, what he presented to the club that they didn't accept. And uh, anything new on that? Because well, he, you know, he, he didn't say anything all those, all those months and ta- weeks they were talking about it. He never made a comment about exactly what he wanted. Now, this week he made a comment about exactly what he wanted. It's an ongoing saga. Um, You know, he he claims that he demanded a trade back in early March prior to the the tag being slapped on him. Uh, He sent over Twitter, he sent a letter to the Baltimore fans, you know, thanking them and all these different things. Right, right. Best decision. We got all the way there, Doug. We're we're out of time. I got our executive producer is on the the horn telling me the clock is ticking. Thanks a lot, Doug. We'll talk to you again next week. Executive Producer Frank Carroll, take it away. (laughs) Okay, have a great week. God bless. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, these programs are brought to you each and every night of the week in grateful appreciation to the men and women of the United States Armed Forces and then women, police, and fire services. When you're out there and see somebody in uniform, please let them know that you know they're there. Remember, they're the ones that are running into places where everybody's running out of. These programs are dedicated to those who've lost their lives in the line of duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman Jeffrey Colcap, Patrolman David Curtis, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazowit, Sergeant Thomas Batinger, <coughs> Detective Randy Bell, Detective Rick Childers, San Diego Officer Mike Henley, Sergeant Tom Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Department, Patrolman Charlie Condit, Tarpon Springs Police Department, Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department, Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department, Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, Sergeant Chris Levake, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, Patrolman and Officer Chris from Lakeland PD, Lieutenant Joe Zerber, Newcastle County Police, Patrolman Josh Myers, Nassau County Sheriff's Department, Captain Matt Letourneau, Philadelphia Fire Department, Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Artis Pope, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Jerry Ficus, Wilmington Fire Department, Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol, Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol, Chief Al Hogle, Longmoe Key Police Department. Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department. Deputy Mike Hargrove, Pine Ellis County Sheriff's Department. Deputy Billy Lane, Polk County Sheriff's Department. Deputy Chris Myers, <coughs> Polk County Sheriff's Department. Sergeant Christopher Fitzgerald, Sergeant Philadelphia Sheriff's Department and Temple University Police Department. My brothers and sisters, although you may be 10-7 at this point in time, at some time we'll be 10-10 at the table of the Lord. Until that time, when the rose rates up to meet you, 
Fade winds will be always at your back. And the rains fall softly on your fields and the sun shine lightly on your feet. Peace, your face. Until we meet again, may the Lord, good Lord keep you and your family always in the hollow of his hands. Good night, God bless, and have a great week.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.